Well, what a beautiful Lord's Day God's given to us today. It's wonderful to see everybody here uh, on this uh, beautiful day that God's uh, given to us. This is the first Sunday of the month, so we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, but we'll do that at the end of the service. So just want to uh, remind you of that so we can be preparing our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. If you're visiting here with us this morning, we're glad you're here. Uh, we're in a study of the book of Nehemiah. We've titled this study, Rebuilding Your Future. And our text this morning is Nehemiah chapter 6. So if you'll take your Bible and uh, turn there with me to the sixth chapter of the book of Nehemiah. In his book, uh, Fuzzy Memories, uh, Jack Handy writes this. He said, there used to be this bully who would demand my lunch money every day. Since I was smaller, I would give it to him. Then I decided to fight back. I started taking karate lessons. But then the karate lesson guy said I had to start paying him $5 a lesson. So I just went back to paying the bully. I think too many Christians are like that today, and we often believe it's kind of just easier to, to pay the bully than it is to learn how to overcome him. Uh, but Nehemiah refuses to pay the bullies, if you will, and he stands up to them again and again. And when the dust finally settles here in Nehemiah chapter 6, he's the last man standing. And the same must be true of us. If we want to be holy and happy in the Lord in our lives, we'll have to fight for it. Uh, we cannot be passive. There, there's a cost. Um, it won't come easy to us. Because we all know in the Christian life, there, there's no winning without warfare. There's no opportunity without opposition. Uh, there will be no victory without vigilance in our, our Christian lives. Let me read Nehemiah 6, 1 through 9 for us. And then I'll drop down and read verse 15. We'll look at the whole chapter, but this will uh, set the stage for us. Now it came about when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to Geshem the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors of the gates in the gates. The Sanballat, Geshem, and Geshem sent a message to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Kepharim in the plain of Ono, but they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent messages to me four times in this manner, and I answered them in the same way. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Gashmu says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you're rebuilding the wall. You are to be their king according to these reports." And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you. A king is in Judah, and now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. Then I sent a message to him saying, Such things as you were saying have not been done, but you're inventing them in your own mind. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands." And then down in verse 15, so the wall was completed on the 25th of the month Elul in 52 days. So reads God's inspired word. And one of the things we've seen here in the book of Nehemiah is that the attack of the enemy against the work of rebuilding the walls in the city of Jerusalem uh, was relentless. They launched several attacks in fact, if you remember, it started back in chapter 2 when Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem from Persia to, to take on this work and to begin it. The first people that meet him there are Sanballat and Tobiah, these enemies who will oppose the work. So they oppose the work at the beginning of it. 
Remember in chapter 4, at the halfway point in the work, they began to have threats that they were going to invade and to kill the people in the city to stop the work. And then now we're here at the, the final end point of the work. All that remains now is just uh, to hang the gates. And so at the beginning, at the middle, and at the end, the enemy launches these attacks to stop the work. So all that remains is for these gates to be hung. So this is the last-ditch effort, if you will, to stop this project. And one of the things we see here is that opposition to God's work is inevitable. It's always going to be there, but it's also sustained and relentless. Satan never quits in his desire to stop God's work. So again, these opponents, they're there at the start, they're there at the middle, they're there at the end. They're trying to shut down the work. But now here in chapter 6, the enemies try not to bring the work down, but they try to bring Nehemiah down. Uh, they shift the focus to get, come after Nehemiah personally. So here in Nehemiah 6, it gets personal now. They realize the only way to stop the work is to take out Nehemiah. So they're kind of down, if you will, to the nuclear option. They can't kill the enthusiasm, so they have to kill the enthusiast. So it's get rid of Nehemiah now at all costs. They go after the leader. And that's what the enemy commonly does. In fact, there's an old saying that says when lightning strikes in a forest, it always hits the tallest tree. And in the same way, Satan goes after leaders in family and, and in the, uh, the home and in the church. In fact, I saw a cartoon years ago of a couple of deer standing there, and one deer had a huge bullseye on his side. And the other deer looked at him and said, man, that's a bummer of a birthmark. And uh, I like that story because every leader in some senses has a, a bullseye on them. Uh, Satan's taking aim at them because the enemy knows if the leadership collapses, if he can get to the leadership of whatever it is, uh, that it's over. So I just say here's an application up front. We need to pray for our leaders. We need to pray for our leaders in our country. We need to pray for our fathers, our leaders in our homes. We need to pray for our elders, our pastors here in this church. And uh, pray for me, please. I, I would appreciate that. We need your prayers. Now, when we get to this point in the passage, the work has reached a crucial stage. It's almost done. And again, this is one last-ditch effort of the enemy. The, the, the window of opportunity to stop this thing is closing. So they have three final techniques or traps or tricks that they unleash here to stop the work. And they all have to do with Nehemiah himself. And these three you can see in your outline are intrigue, innuendo, and intimidation. The first scheme here is intrigue. Notice in verse 1 it mentions Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. These are the three power brokers in the lands that are around Judah, uh, the place where Jerusalem is. Uh, there in, in, in the uh, Middle East, in the land of Israel. And what they do here in verse 2 is they call for peace talks. They say, come, let us meet together at Kepharim in the plain of Ono, but they were planning to harm me. So they call for a political summit. They use a friendliness and persuasion. That They give the pretense of peace. They say, look, we need to have peaceful coexistence, and uh, Nehemiah, come and meet us here. Let's uh, smoke the peace pipe, if you will, and kind of meet halfway. Uh, look, we're going to have to live together now that you've accomplished this project, and so let's come together and kind of have a peace summit. Uh, to me, this has all the hallmarks of like a concession speech. You know, when someone loses a political campaign, they always say, you know, we've had our differences, you know, it's, it's time to unite, you know, looks like you've won, so now we're ready to talk and, and get behind one another. 
another here. This is exactly what's going on. But it's not a sincere offer of peace. This is trickery. It's a, it's a Trojan horse, if you will. It's kind of a, a cloak and dagger. And so their offer here is to meet at a neutral site in a place called the Plain of Ono. Um, it was uh, an oasis area. In fact, uh, some of the reading I've done, I've not been able to confirm this totally, says that Ono, uh, this area, was in the area today where Ben-Gurion Airport is near Tel Aviv. So if you've ever flown into Israel, into Tel Aviv, that's probably where this area of Ono was. But it was a retreat location for wealthy people. So Nehemiah's been working hard, and they see Nehemiah, why don't you come down here to an all-expense-paid trip to the Ono Resort and Country Club here, and let's have a meeting together. Now, the plot here, at a minimum, is to get Nehemiah away from the work. But probably their ultimate desire is to kill him. Notice what he says at the end of verse 2. Nehemiah here smells a rat. And he says, they were planning to harm me. So the ultimate goal is to lure him away to a neutral site where they can assassinate him. In verse 3, I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. As many commentators have pointed out, Nehemiah says, oh no to oh no. I mean, he's having none of this. And again, he smells a rat in this. But these enemies are relentless. Verse 4, they sent messages to me four times in this manner. And I answered them in the same way. So four letters they send trying to get him to come meet them there at Ono. And four times he refuses. So they're persistent, but Nehemiah is just as persistent in his refusal as they are uh, in their attempts. So Nehemiah here sticks to his guns and he stays focused. He won't take his eye off the ball. And he says in verse 3, this is an important statement, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. What I'm doing is important. It's a great work. And I'm not going to leave this work to come there to meet you. And of course, he, he knows they're up to no good anyway. And one of the things I think this tells us is in your life and in my life, not all things are equal. Some things demand our attention. And if we're not careful in life, we can get distracted and sidetracked from what God really wants us to be doing. And all of us know that. Look, if you're a, a father here this morning, you have children at home, God has given you a great work to do, to lead that family, to lead your wife, to lead your children, uh, to love Christ, and to teach your children to honor and to obey their parents and other people. It's a great work. Don't be distracted from it. A lot of you mothers who are here today, you're home with kids, and it seems routine and, and difficult and, and sometimes monotonous and boring every day. Don't allow the enemy to come in and distract you from what God has called you to do and sidetrack you in that. I can assure you what you're doing is a great work. And like Nehemiah, you need to say, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Look, all of us need to order our priorities around our calling in life. And outlasting the enemy is going to require focus. We can't get distracted. Now, one of the things this also requires is you know what your calling is. And what does God want me to do? Some of us may not really have a clear idea of what is the focus of what God wants me to do. Now, we all have to do a lot of things. But what are the important things that God wants me to do that I'm going to say no to other things so I'm not distracted from it? Nehemiah saw everything in view of his primary calling in life. He looked at everything through the lens of his calling, through this primary focus. 
And you think about the people you know whose lives have really made a mark and made a difference in this world, and they're focused people. They don't succumb to distraction. They know what they're doing, they know why they're doing it, and they know how they're going to accomplish it. Look, you and I need to know what our wall is and where our place on the wall is and not come down from it for distraction. This is a great work Nehemiah is doing. The work of Nehemiah on this wall was a lot more than just building a wall around the city. This had long-term repercussions. This wall and the city Nehemiah is building is paving the way for the coming of the Messiah 400 years later, the Lord Jesus. Jesus is going to come to the city built by Nehemiah. And I think Nehemiah has some sense that he knows Jerusalem is God's city. It's the city of David. He knows it's where the Messiah is going to come. And he says, this is a great work. So I'd encourage you, whatever you're doing that God's called you to do, don't come off of your wall. There are all kinds of things in life to get you off your wall. So stay on it and say no to distractions. Here's the way James Hamilton says it in his commentary on Nehemiah. He says, are there things that persistently distract you from what God has called you to do? If you're a student, God has called you to honor him in your studies. If you're an employee, God has called you to honor him in the way you serve your employer. If you're a spouse, God has called you to honor him in your marriage. If you're single, God has called you to honor him in your singleness. If you're a child, God has called you to honor him by obeying and honoring your parents. Let's, let's answer the things that would distract us from the great work God has given each of us to do with the same steadfastness we see from Nehemiah here. And then he says this. This is really good. If your email chimes, if there's something silly on TV that would rob you of time with your children, if there's something, someone who wants to gossip with you, respond like this. I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Why would the work cease while I leave it and come down to you? It's a good answer. A lot in life to get us down off the wall. About, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago, I watched one of the most interesting documentaries I've ever watched. It was on United Airlines Flight 173. It happened back in 1978. It was a flight from New York City to Portland. I think they stopped in Denver. But on the Denver to Portland leg, when they, were running, when they were coming into the Portland airport to land, when they let the landing gear down, they heard a noise, and the light came on that the landing gear had not been successfully deployed. Now, it turns out it actually was okay, but they thought it, well, there was a problem, so they were told to get in a holding pattern while they, while they could diagnose the problem. Now, while they're flying around there, one of the men that they have the, the black box and all that, the conversations, starts telling them they're running low on fuel and mentions it a couple times later. One of the things they don't realize is the landing gear's down, which is causing more drag, so they're, they're using a lot more fuel. But what's interesting is in this whole scenario, all the pilot thinks about, he's a senior pilot, is the landing gear. And he's over there just messing with this landing gear stuff and thinking about that, and he's totally not hearing anything that's being said about the fuel. Well, the plane ends up not making it to the runway, crashes into a neighborhood, a suburban neighborhood in Portland. Ten people are killed. And that case really becomes a, a study from that point on about the interaction of crew members and what they're to be focused on during uh, their flights. What was interesting is the most important thing that they're running out of fuel, they were distracted by this part of the landing gear. Now, you know, not having your landing gear down, which they thought wasn't down, is not a good thing, but you can land with your landing gear uh, not employed, right? But you can't make it there without gas. And, and the enemy, I think, comes in with us to distract us 
uh, while we're running out of fuel from what really matters in life. And so lesson number one for you and for me, when you face opposition and accusation from other people, stay focused. Don't get distracted. Now, the second scheme the enemy comes up with here is innuendo. After Nehemiah refuses four times to come meet them, they take the gloves off here. I mean, this is political hardball. Verse 5, Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. And in it was written, it is reported among the nations, and uh, uh, Gashmu, that's probably uh, another name for Geshem, says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. You're re rebuilding the wall, and you're to be their king according to these reports. So what he does, he sends an open letter to Nehemiah, and he says, Nehemiah, I think you're leading a messianic movement. I'm going to send word back to King Artaxerxes, the Persian king, that you're proclaiming yourself king in Jerusalem which is obviously not a good thing for Artaxerxes to hear, that you're declaring your independence, you're, you're going to break away. And also, I think in doing this, the enemy is planting suspicion in the minds of the people in Jerusalem that maybe Nehemiah is having us help him build this wall for his own personal gains, and at the end of all this, he's going to proclaim that he's the king. So, they're spreading rumors and, and misrepresenting his motives. It's basically slander. They're trying to create a big scandal, which politicians love to do, right? And one of the things that's interesting, I think, about this is he, he emphasizes here the letter that he sent was unsealed. So anybody could read it. He wanted the contents of this to spread as far and wide as possible. And we all know that rumors, even if they're not true, are often sufficient to damage someone's integrity. And part of our fallenness as human beings is we always love to believe the worst about other people, don't we? So these enemies tap into all of that. And it's interesting in verse uh, 6, he says, In it is written, it is reported among the nations, and people are saying these things. Have you ever noticed when people mention rumors, it's often they are saying this or people are saying this? One of the things I've noted, noticed in the church over the years, when people want something, they'll come up and say, man, a lot of people are saying this or whatever. When you get down to it, it's like one person or two people, right? But it's always they are saying this, you know, or people are saying this. But what they're doing by this is trying to bully and intimidate and manipulate Nehemiah into coming out to meet them out there at Ono because, again, they want to do him harm. But all of this is an attack on his character, I mean, this is, uh, this is fake news at its best right here. Now, what does Nehemiah do about this? Notice he doesn't retaliate and go and engage in a long defense of his character. Nehemiah does three things. In verse 8, I sent a message to him saying, such things as you were saying have not been done. In other words, he refutes it. He says, look what you're saying is not true. Then he rebukes it. He says, but you're inventing them in your own mind for all of us, for, for all of them are trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. He rebukes it and says, look, what you're trying to do is intimidate us. And four times from here on in this, in this uh, chapter, you have the word frighten. You have it verse 9, verse 13, verse 14, verse 19. You're trying to frighten us and intimidate us. So all of this is a big fear campaign uh, against Nehemiah. And then the third thing Nehemiah does, he refutes it. He says it's not true. 
He rebukes it, and then he, he refers it to the Lord. Notice the end of verse 9. But now, O Lord, O God, strengthen my hands. He refers it to the Lord. He entrusts himself to the Lord, and he entrusts his cause to the Lord. This is another one of Nehemiah's little arrow prayers, or we call them uh, text message prayers, or whatever term you want to give for these, but just brief prayers that he shoots up to the Lord. We have another one of them down in verse 14. Remember, O oh my God, Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these works of theirs. But here he, he's confessing his weakness. And I love this. Nehemiah limits his words before men, but he goes and pours out his heart before God. He takes his case to the Lord. And Nehemiah here has nothing to hide. He has a, an integrity before God and before men. And one of the things that you and I should cherish above everything else is our character. There's an old saying that take care of your character and God will take care of your reputation. And all of us need to remember that. If you'll take care of your character, God will take care of your reputation. And Nehemiah commits his reputation over to the Lord. He doesn't get embroiled in a long, time-consuming defense of his character. But for a lot of us, our first reaction is to defend ourselves and to lash out and to retaliate and go in long defenses of these things. But Nehemiah refutes it, he rebukes it, and he hands his reputation and this over to the Lord. He says, Lord, strengthen our hands. Now, all of us here probably had untrue rumors circulated about us. We've been misrepresented. I mean, I know I have many times, and it's no fun. And it's going to become, it's more and more common today with social media. Those of you that are younger people out here, I'm sure there's been all kinds of things probably said about you on social media. And I think in our culture, as our culture moves farther and farther away from the Lord and becomes more corrupt and becomes more coarsened, there's going to be more and more opposition and accusations that are going to be leveled against us as believers. And for those of you that are younger, a lot of that's going to happen out there in social media. We're going to be called all kinds of names and accused of all kinds of things that aren't true of us. And it's not easy to handle unjust accusations. But what do we do? It's right to refute it. It's right to say it's not true and to even rebuke it and say, look, here's what you're trying to gain from this. But ultimately what Nehemiah does and what we have to do is refer it to the Lord and count on God to defend our reputation. If you go back to chapter 4, verse 20, what does Nehemiah say there to the people? Our God will fight for us. And we need to remind ourselves and we need to remind our children and our grandchildren of that as well. Ultimately, in this culture, we do what we can do. We live lives of character, but ultimately God is the one who fights for us. We hand ourselves over to the Lord in prayer. We don't allow ourselves to become frightened and discouraged. There's an old saying I love. It says, knees don't knock when you're kneeling on them. It's pretty good, isn't it? Knees don't knock when you're kneeling on them. Nehemiah gets on his knees and he takes it to the Lord. He says, oh Lord, strengthen my hands for this work. So lesson number two when facing accusation and opposition is refute it and commit yourself to the Lord in prayer and then move on and continue to do what God has called you to do. Don't let it stall you and discourage you. Now the third scheme here is to, to ratchet up the intensity is what I call intimidation. Notice in verse 10, when I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, 
uh, the son of uh, Mahetabel, who was confined at home, he said, let's meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you. Literally, it says, and they're coming to kill you tonight. So what Sanballat and Tobiah do is they hire some prophets, probably several of them, these false prophets, to try to lure Nehemiah to the temple. And so this prophet here, this false prophet, Shemaiah, uh, the prophet shuts himself up in his house to give the impression that like Nehemiah, he's in danger as well. And he invites Nehemiah over to his house and he says, Nehemiah, I've got word, some secret news. You're going to get killed. People are after you and they're going to kill you tonight. So let's run together and flee to the temple. Notice he mentions the doors of the temple because that would have been a safe place to hide out. And he says, let's go and, and let's hide out there in the temple until this storm has passed by. So he's saying, look, you're on, you're on a hit list. And there's some murdering assassins that are coming to your house to kill you tonight. Now, Nehemiah in verse 11 gives his answer. But I said, should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Notice earlier, Nehemiah told him, I'm not going to come down from the wall. And now he says, I'm not going to go in uh, to the temple. I think what he's saying here is, look, what kind of message is that going to send to the people if I turn tail and run? It's going to discredit me. But, but I think even more importantly, Nehemiah refuses this because in the Old Testament, in the law, it was forbidden for anyone but a priest to go into the temple. And the word that's used here for the temple is in the holy place. You couldn't go in there. In fact, one of the kings, remember Uzziah, violated this and became leprous. So it's not lawful for Nehemiah to enter the temple. Only the priests could enter there. And so what they're trying to do is to scare Nehemiah, get him to violate the Bible and go into the temple, and then they can use that to discredit him and say, look what kind of a man Nehemiah is. So it's a spiritual seduction to create fear, to lure him into committing a sin. And Nehemiah here says, I'm not going to do it. Nehemiah would rather lose his life than sin. And there's a great lesson for us here. If someone tells you to do something that the Bible forbids, no matter how spiritual they may seem, they may claim to be a prophet, they may cloak it in all kinds of spiritual language, but you can know if it's contrary to the Bible, they don't speak for God. And Nehemiah knows that what this man has told him is contrary to the Scriptures. So test any advice that people give you against the Word of God and build your life upon the Scriptures. That was the foundation of Nehemiah's life. It was the Word of God. His, his, his feet were firmly planted in the Scriptures. And there's a whole conspiracy against him. He says in verse 14, Remember, O my God, Tobiah and Sanballat, according to their works, the works of theirs, and also Noadiah, the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who are trying to frighten me. So it's not just this one guy. It's a whole conspiracy of prophets and prophetesses who are trying uh, to discredit uh, Nehemiah. And I find this fascinating. He says, Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these works of theirs. Nehemiah believes there's going to be a day of reckoning. There's going to be a final judgment. And he's saying, God, whenever these men stand before you someday, remember what they've done. He believes that there's a judgment that's coming. And I like what Raymond Brown says in his commentary on, on Nehemiah. He says, these men imagine they're devising imminent destruction for Nehemiah. 
In reality, they're preparing a grim destiny for themselves. And Nehemiah's life is built on the Word of God, and their lives aren't. Look, we ensure our future both in this life, we ensure that we're going to stand in this life and stand in the life to come by building our lives on the Word of God. It's a story I read a while back. It was uh, one of the titles of one of the articles was Last House Standing. And it said this, When deadly Hurricane Andrew hit Florida years ago, it destroyed almost everything in its path. But when the winds and rain died down, TV networks used their cameras to capture the image of a lone house standing firmly in place amidst an entire neighborhood of debris. When they asked why this house was the only one still standing, the owner said this, I built this house myself. I built it according to the Florida State Building Code. When it called for two-by-six roof trusses, I used two-by-six roof trusses. When it called for screws, I used screws. I was told that a house built according to code could withstand a hurricane. I did, and it did. I suppose no one else around here followed the code. All these houses are all wiped out. I mean, this guy followed the code when he built his house, and his house stood And the same thing is true of your life and my life. Our life will stand in the the here and now if we build our life on the Word of God, but it will also stand someday when we are before the Lord. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 7? Build your house upon the rock so that when the wind and the waves come against it, it'll stand. Don't build your house on the sand. And of course, in that great sermon on the mount, Jesus himself is the rock, the foundation upon which he's calling them uh, to build their lives. Look, it's, it's important for us to stand in this life, but the most important thing is, will you be left standing when you stand before the Lord someday and are called to account? The only way you're going to be standing in the judgment is if your life is built on the solid foundation of the scriptures and what they reveal to us about Jesus that he's God in human flesh who came and died for our sins on, on the cross. He rose again the third day. And to put your trust and your faith and your hope in him. Follow the code and your life will stand both here and now and it'll stand in the future as well. Well, verses 15 and 16 tell us the wall's finished. You know, one of the best ways to answer opposition and accusations against you is just keep on working. Keep your head down, keep on working. That's what Nehemiah does. He just keeps working and the will of God is fulfilled. The whole thing's finished in 52 days. All the events in Nehemiah 2 through 6 happen in six months. And the wall is built in 52 days. It's the wall we know from archaeology was, uh, archaeological excavations was two and a half miles long. They estimate it was about 40 feet tall and averaged about nine feet thick. And Nehemiah just kept on and he kept on. And verse 16 says, And it came about when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounded us saw it, they lost their confidence for they recognized the work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Isn't that amazing? Even the enemies had to recognize God was helping the people in doing this. There's no way they could have done it on their own. And so we see here the, the, the subtlety of the enemy, but the sufficiency of the Lord. The Lord is sufficient to meet opposition and accusation and to help us stand. And here Nehemiah is at the end. He's the last man standing. Now, this chapter ends with an interesting little story. 
Verse 17, in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. So there are a lot of wealthy people there in Jerusalem that are sending information to Tobiah, and Tobiah is sending information to them. So Tobiah, remember, is the, the head of the Ammonites, and so I would call this today Ammonite collusion. I mean, there's a lot of spies and informants here on the inside, and the information's going back and forth. This is what Nehemiah is having to combat. And you go on down in verse 18 and read that Tobiah married a Jewish woman, and his son married a Jewish woman. So they're on the inside with a lot of the wealthy people that continue to uh, afflict Nehemiah and what he's trying to do. And when it says in verse 18, many in Judah were bound by oath to Tobiah, probably what that refers to is trading contracts. So they're still bound to Tobiah trying to make money, and they're not all in with Nehemiah because they're tied to Tobiah to make money. And it always comes down to the money, doesn't it? But that's, what, that's what's happening on the inside. And it says in verse 19, Moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. People are telling Tobiah, everything Nehemiah is saying. And then the final words here in chapter 6, then Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. He's still out. It's just, just sustained attack. The enemy never gives up in his opposition and his accusation. But you and I need to take this truth here this morning that we've seen and download this into our lives. Because as God's people in this culture we live in today, we're going to continue to face opposition and we're going to continue to face unjust accusations about what we believe, about uh, how we behave. And it's important for us to stay focused and not allow uh, to ourselves to be sidetracked by distractions, uh, to commit our way to the Lord and ultimately realize that it's God who can take care of our reputation and to build our lives solidly upon the foundation of God's Word. God often gives me opportunities to apply the truth that I'm studying to my own life. And about three weeks ago, I got an email from a guy, and I get emails a lot about Bible prophecy since I've written books and spoken on this. And he sends me an email, and he's real nice up front. He has a few questions about my view about the pre-trib rapture that he wants me to answer. So um, I answered his questions, and uh, then he sent back with a whole bunch more questions. And I told him, look, I'll try to get to these, but you know, I'm busy and it's difficult to you know, answer this long list of questions. Well, I didn't get around to it for a few days, and he sent me a, an email demanding that I answer his questions. You know, if I couldn't answer them, then you know, I didn't have answers to them, and I was a big fraud and all this kind of stuff. But he started off real nice, and it starts getting like worse as you go along. Now, I'm not trying to say like I'm like Nehemiah, like somebody's going to come kill me or something. I'm just giving you this illustration of things that distract us. Then I find out later he sends me this, this text or this email, and he's got this document. He's written like a 123-page document against the pre-trib rapture. So, I mean, the guy's mind's already made up. Well, then he finally sends me this un, one email, and he says, I'm giving you seven days to give answers to these questions. You know, if you don't, you know, he's going to go on a big social media spree and tell everybody bad stuff about me or whatever, I guess. So, finally, I send him back. I said, look... I don't, you know, whatever view you hold of the rapture, that doesn't determine anybody's salvation. Good people disagree about this. If you have a different view, that's fine, you know. Uh, but I said, I need you to respect my decision. Of course, by now, I don't want to answer the guy anyway. He's demanded me and threatening me and all this stuff. So 
Finally, I thought I'd gotten rid of him, but this morning I get another email from him, and he's basically questioning my salvation in the one he sent me this morning. So anyway, I'm not answering any more of them, but I just mentioned that because the enemy comes after us all the time to try to distract us. He's going to try to get us away from what God wants us to do, and, and people are going to threaten to say things about us and ruin our reputation or whatever. We have to commit that over to the Lord. We refute it and then commit it to the Lord, and then just go on with the work that God's called us to do, continue to build our lives and have influence we can with others to see them build their lives upon the Word of God. That's what God's calling us to do in this time in which we live. And um, look, a lot of you out here, a lot of you young people, that are involved in a lot of social media and all these kind of things, I, I, I think this is going to really get ratcheted up in the days ahead. And I pray that you'll be like Nehemiah. You'll find solace in this and comfort. And uh, look, ultimately what Nehemiah says in chapter 4 is what we have to rest upon. Our God will fight for us. That's our ultimate assurance we have. God is sufficient. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for myself and for everyone here this morning that we'll be left standing, Father, in the day of judgment through our faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can build our lives on the solid rock of Jesus. We can not only stand in this life against opposition and accusation, but we can be left standing someday when we're before you because we stand on nothing but the solid rock of our Lord Jesus. Father, I pray for all of us here in our families, our homes, our marriages those who are raising children and families. Father, keep us focused. Keep us on mission. Help us to dismiss the distractions of life that come along that try to sidetrack us. Father, I pray that you'll strengthen our hands for the work that you've given us to do. Oh God, may we recognize always your sufficiency, that you're the one who fights for us. Father, now prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper as we remember our Lord Jesus and his death and resurrection for us. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen.